and we're going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 18. It's page 323 in the Red Bibles in the pew. And we're going to read the whole chapter together. Second Samuel chapter 18, beginning to read at verse 1. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent the troops out, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruiah, and a third under Etai the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all the men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. The army marched into the field to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There the army of Israel was defeated by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest claimed more lives that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's head got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw this, he told Joab, I have just seen Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who told him this, What, you saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out in my hands, I would not lift my hand against the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I am not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. For he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself. 
and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. Now Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. You are not the one to take the news today, Joab told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to a Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said again to Joab, come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, my son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you any reward. He said, come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went onto the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he is alone, he must have good news. And the man came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another man running, and he called down to the gatekeeper, look, another man running alone. The king said, he must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, it seems to me to be that the first one runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. He's a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my Lord, the king. The king asked, is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant, but I don't know what it was. The king said, stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has delivered you today from all who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. Amen. We thank God for his word and trust that he'll help us to understand it as we come to look at it later. Well, if you have a Bible with you, then please do turn to that chapter that we read in 2 Samuel, chapter 18. It'd be really helpful if you can follow along what we're going to be looking at there together. What is it that you say when people ask you, do you want to hear the good news or the bad news? In some ways, that is the conundrum that David faces at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 18, or at least he is waiting on and hoping for good news. And in a sense, he gets some, but the bad news he receives is like a hammer blow to his soul. It grieves him deeply. We've been working our way through the life of David as recorded for us in 1 and 2 Samuel. We have seen his rise to power and affluence in Israel In particular, we have seen God's blessing upon his life in all sorts of different ways. 
We have seen at times that David has been a great king. He has given the accolade of being a man after God's own heart. However, we have also seen how David's life has spiraled somewhat out of control after his affair with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David does repent of his sins and God does graciously forgive his sin, but God does not shield him from the consequences of his sins. And from 2 Samuel chapter 12 onwards, a whole world of pain enters David's life and family. And in some ways, it culminates in the rebellion of his son Absalom and the events described for us in the chapter that we read this morning. These are parts of the Bible that are perhaps unfamiliar for some of us. And so it can be hard to get our heads, it can be difficult for us to get our heads around what's actually happening, let alone try to apply it to our lives today. Nonetheless, we believe that all of the Bible is God's word, that all of it is written for our instruction, that all of it has something useful to teach us about how to live the Christian life. And I hope that we will see that that's the case from this chapter here this morning. So what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 18 and why does it matter? We've seen in the past couple of weeks that David has been facing a rebellion in his kingdom. That rebellion's led by his son Absalom. Absalom is an arrogant and proud man. He has craftily won the hearts of the people of Israel. He has set himself up firmly against his father. And of course, in doing so, he is setting himself up against his king, the people's king, God's king. And so this is not only a bitter family feud, it is also an act of treason and betrayal. One of the the tragic tensions of this chapter is that the conflict we see here is not only between a king and his rival, but it is also between a father and a son. I find it impossible to read this story this week and not read it as a father. It makes you feel something of the agony of the text, I think, and how it all pans out for David is just tragic. In that respect, it is a heartbreaking chapter. It is one of the saddest in David's life, And although it eventually ends in victory, it truly is the saddest of victories. And David's words at the end of the chapter are some of the most painful, I think, in his whole life. So three things that we'll we'll see this morning. David's love for Absalom, first of all. Then justice for Absalom. And then we'll see that in this particular story, there is no meeting of justice and love. Justice and love are the two big themes running through the whole chapter. We've already said something of the tension between father and son, but the greatest tension in the chapter is between justice and love. Which will win? Will Absalom receive justice or will David's love for his son overcome? That's the tension that the author wants us to hold in our minds as we read this whole story. So first of all then, David's love for Absalom. In the opening verses of the chapter, we see something of David's love for his son, but also something of the people's love for David as their king. Remember, he's been exiled at this point, forced to flee Jerusalem in humiliation. His back is firmly against the wall. He is facing potentially the greatest ever challenge to his kingdom. And knowing the significance of the upcoming battle, David wants to fight with his men. We see that in verse 2. Would that he had showed the same diligence in chapter 11, and we might not have found ourselves in this whole sorry mess. 
Nonetheless, David seems to have learned from his error here. But his own men recognize the importance of David to their cause and they insist that he doesn't join them in the heat of the battle. Their fear is that if he is struck down, that will be the end of their hopes of victory. He is their talismanic leader and he must be kept alive at all costs. David respects the advice of his generals, but his parting words to them as they march off to battle set up the drama of the rest of the chapter. Look at verse five. When speaking of Absalom, David says, be gentle with the young man, Absalom, for my sake. You can hear the tension in that sentence, can't you? The king has spoken, but they are also the words of a father. Absalom is a traitor. He is a rebel. He does deserve to die. But he is also a son who, in spite of his many failures, is loved by his father. The text isn't explicit, but surely David realizes at this point that he is partly to blame himself for how Absalom has turned out. And the tragedy of this chapter is that not only have David's failures as a king brought him to this point, but actually David's feelings as a father have brought him and Absalom to this point. And so while David's sentimentality here might make him seem politically weak, he shows himself to be gentle and a compassionate king who loves his son even though he has become his enemy. And in that sense, David here is foreshadowing the Lord Jesus Christ, who also loves those who have rebelled against him and who graciously deals gently with those who oppose him. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are exploring the Christian faith. You're trying to make sense of what it all means. You're trying to get your head around what the Bible actually teaches. Well, this is what makes Christianity unique among all other world religions and among all other world views. We have a king who loves and serves and dies even for his enemies. To some, such love might seem like weakness and folly, but this love is the great hope of the Christian, that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter five. And this is what makes the Christian faith unique. There really is nothing like this in any other religion in the world. And so if we're Christians here this morning, then really we ought to be the most grateful and joyful people in the world because we have a God who has loved us in spite of our rebellion against him. So let me ask you, are you a grateful Christian here this morning? Are you a joyful Christian here this morning? If not, then perhaps we need to think more upon what Jesus has done for us. While we were his enemies, our king laid down his life for us so that we could be his friends. It's a cause for having thankful and joyful hearts. It's good news. Secondly then in this passage, we, we see that there is justice for Absalom. The focus shifts to the battle itself. The writer doesn't give us loads of information about the battle, but the details he does give us are important. You'll notice that we're told that David's army are fighting against Israel. 
We're told that in verses 6 and 7. The implication here is that the nation as a whole has rejected David as king. This is a family feud, but it has also escalated into full-scale civil war. And then there's the strange little detail in verse 8 that tells us that the forest devoured more men in the battle than the sword. It seems that the forest of Ephraim in which the battle was fought was treacherous terrain full of ravines and marshes and cliffs and so on. And it appears that there may well have been many fatal accidents in the forest, as many as there were in the battle itself. Certainly the terrain plays a role in the eventual downfall of Absalom himself. In verse 9, we have an eyewitness account of the events that led to his eventual downfall. He is riding on his horse. He gets stuck in the branches of a great oak tree and finds himself suspended in midair. He isn't dead at this point, but he is clearly incapacitated, and any hopes that he had of becoming king have galloped off into the distance along with his horse. And as with many others that day, the forest had captured him. Someone saw all of this, a member of David's army, it seems, and he reports what had happened to the commander of David's forces, Joab, and Joab can't quite believe it. He doesn't understand why the eyewitness didn't strike down Absalom there and then, but the man had remembered what David had specifically said to Joab and his generals, and remember, that was an earshot of all of the people. Absalom was to be dealt with gently. Joab wastes no time in taking the matter into his own hands. He found Absalom, thrust three javelins into his heart, and then ten of his men make sure that he is dead. If that was Joab dealing gently with Absalom, as David had commanded, then you wouldn't want to know what dealing harshly with him might have looked like. Clearly, Joab has a different view of how to treat Absalom than what David does. Joab is thinking here with the shrewd and cold-hearted political and military head-on. He leaves no room for sentiment. As far as he is concerned, the time for David to play happy families has long since passed. For Joab, Absalom represents the single biggest threat to David's throne and dynasty, and so he must be dealt with. And so he kills him. He gives him somewhat of a hasty and shameful burial. We read about that in verse 17. The heaping of great stones over his grave is descriptive of a burial fit for a sinner. It was to be a reminder to all of the people of what happens to those who set themselves up against the Lord's anointed king. And then the little anecdotal anecdotal note in In verse 18 is interesting as well, isn't it? At some point in his life, Absalom, it seems, has built a monument to himself. He isn't the first wayward leader to have done so in this saga. Saul did something very similar back in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And just like Saul's monument, Absalom's pillar was for himself. It was a symbol of his ambition and arrogance and pride. And of course, the irony that the writer wants us to notice is that Absalom dies in failure and in humiliation. We're meant to compare these two monuments. And ultimately, we're meant to see that the one that is most fitting for Absalom is the pile of stones marking his grave. He wanted to be a hero, but he is remembered as nothing more than a rebel and an enemy. It's also undignified 
isn't it? Absalom's death. In some ways, he is a warning to us, a warning not to be so self-obsessed and so self-absorbed that we make it our life's goal to make our own name great and in doing so forget all about the Lord's anointed king. That proud desire for greatness seems to have been the driving motivation behind much of Absalom's life, but it all ends in tears for him. One writer says, truly great men and women are not usually obsessed with how history will remember them. History does remember them precisely because they were not self-absorbed. These are timely and humbling words for us, I think. In an increasingly narcissistic culture where so much of our existence is centered around making a name for ourselves, Absalom is a warning to us of the emptiness of pursuing such a life. He receives the justice that he was due. And in his death, we see the triumph of justice over love. If David had had his way, it seems that love would have won and Absalom would have been spared. But Joab makes a political decision, decision that is in, defense, sorry, in defiance of his king's orders and yet it ensures the survival of his king's kingdom. We're not going to get into whether or not Joab did right or wrong or comment on his ethics here. He is a complex character who acts in strange ways throughout the whole story. But there is justice here for Absalom, the one who opposes the Lord's anointed. And Absalom's fate here is a reminder for us that there will be justice for those who willingly oppose the anointed king of God. What are the implications for us today? Well, they can be difficult implications for us to come to terms with. But there is a reminder here that those who oppose God's anointed king will experience his justice. The Bible is clear. There will be a judgment. Every single one of us in this church, every single person in the world will stand before God. And our only hope on that day is to be found in Jesus Christ so that we can stand before God without any fear. Absalom is a reminder to us that God is a God of justice and that we must have faith in Jesus Christ if we're going to be able to face the coming judgment with any confidence. Lastly then, we see in this chapter that there is no meeting of justice and love. The episode comes to an end with the scene of the runners reporting to David what had happened. Joab sends a Cushite with news of victory to King David. The Cushite was a foreigner and it seems that his life was less valuable in Joab's eyes. That's why he's chosen to deliver the bad news to the king about his son's death. Ahimaaz is son of the high priest, Zadok. He also wants to report the good news, but his life was deemed more valuable in the eyes of Joab. And so Joab doesn't want him to bring the news to David. Nonetheless, he eventually lets him go. It turns out that Ahimaaz is quite the long distance runner because he reaches David before the Cushite. And David sees him coming, verse 27. 
and thinks that that brings good news. Ahimaaz reports of a great victory. But when David inquires about the fate of Absalom, Ahimaaz doesn't seem to know what has happened to him. Perhaps Joab was protecting him by not giving him all of the information. It isn't long before the Cushite arrives and David gets the answer to his question. Look at verse 32. David inquires again but his son, about his son and the Cushite replies, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. His language is diplomatic but unambiguous. David knows. He knows the fate of Absalom. He knows that his son is dead. And his reaction is one of the most moving and tragic scenes in the whole Old Testament. We are told that he was deeply moved, that he wept, crying out, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. David is broken by the death of his son. He is stricken with grief. He is cast into despair. He's won a great victory. His people have won a great victory. His kingdom and his throne are secure. But his son is dead. Justice has prevailed, but love had lost. And so David weeps, and he cries for his dead son. One can only imagine the pain and regret that David felt in those moments. Perhaps he replayed all of the opportunities that he had as a parent to do a better job, to invest more in his son's character to teach him more the ways of the Lord, to correct him and to stop him from going down paths of destruction. We don't know exactly what David was thinking as he wept for Absalom, but it is clear that in and amongst all the guilt and regret, David really did love his son. But David was unable to save his son. He couldn't do anything to rescue Absalom from the consequences of his rebellion because he himself was a sinner. And David, of course, was in need of a savior just as much as Absalom was. And actually, it's in the words of David's helpless cry in verse 33 that we get a pointer to the solution that would one day be provided. It's that little line, would I had died instead of of you. That points us to the solution that we all need. It seems unlikely that David was conscious of the significance of these words when he uttered them, and yet they are incredibly poignant, aren't they? Because when the great son of David eventually came, he would come to die instead of his enemies. And having done so, he is able to save people like you and me from the consequences of our sinful rebellion. David was a king who loved his son but couldn't save him. Jesus is the king who loves us and has done everything necessary to save us. And so in this story in 2 Samuel, love and justice never do meet. That's why it's such a tragedy. That's why it's the saddest of victories. But in the good news of the gospel at the cross of Jesus Christ, love and justice do meet. There we see our great King Jesus facing the justice of God on our behalf, taking your sin and my sin upon himself so that we would never have to face God's justice ourselves. Why does he do it? 
doesn't do it because he has to. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. He does it because he loves us. And so if you want to know where love and justice meet, then look to the cross. The Son of God cursed by God for the sins of the world, for your sin and for my sin. And he loved us so much that he was glad to do it. He is the king like no other. He is the king that we all need. And he is the king who calls us to follow him today and every day and for all of our days. Let's pray for his help to do that just now. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you today for King Jesus, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of sinners. We're so thankful today that in him, love and justice meet, and that because of him, people like us can be forgiven. We pray today that you will make us a people whose hearts are full of thankfulness and joy because of all that Jesus has done and all that he has won for us in the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.